Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort so you sleep better together. JD Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For JD Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com/awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. This latest Delta surge is putting public health officials and hospitals on their heels as beds fill up and hospitals struggle to find enough staff. On today's episode of GIST Healthcare Daily, Chaz Rhodes and Isabella Mavich discuss how hospitals are dealing with this fourth wave. It's Monday, August 16th, and I'm Alex Olgan with GIST Healthcare Daily, where you get the headlines in health business and policy news in under 10 minutes. If you like the podcast, please leave us a rating or a review. It helps other listeners find the show. The headlines are bleak. Hospitals in hard-hit states say they're overrun with COVID patients. Some are postponing elective care and running out of beds. This fourth wave came on so fast. Just six weeks ago, the U.S. was averaging about 11,000 cases a day and distributing highly effective vaccines. Now, the country is averaging more than 100,000 cases a day, and hospitals are struggling to find staff to care for COVID patients. GIST Healthcare co-founders Chaz Rhodes and Lisa Belomovich join me to discuss what's different for hospitals this time around. So Chaz, how is Delta causing hospitals to pivot? I know many were winding down their COVID operations this summer. Uh, it's definitely a more complicated situation than we were talking about uh, even a month ago or certainly two months ago. I think um, everyone had started to stand down, uh, you know, disassemble their emergency procedures, uh, get rid of their command centers and so forth. And now, you know, we've just talked to a number of health systems who are putting all that stuff back in place, pressing pause on kind of other big initiatives and turning attention, you know, full on back to uh, to COVID. I think it's, uh, you know, it's unfortunate, but I think the what we're hearing commonly across health system executives is, you know, here we go again into the breach. Um, in a, in a much more complicated situation, but uh, but we're definitely this has now become uh, you know clearly a crisis level again in a lot of places. So is it a tale of two hospitals? Uh, we just healthcare has members in highly vaccinated parts of the country and in poorly vaccinated parts of the country. Are you hearing different things from those hospitals? Well, surely in areas of the country, parts of the Midwest, the South, where they are just being inundated by. COVID cases and the resulting hospitalizations, you know, those hospitals are in deep crisis mode. In some cases, uh, they are exceeding the levels of COVID admissions that they saw even during last summer surge, uh, which was uh, severe for many of them. You know, but we're hearing 
health systems in parts of the country where vaccination rates are high, while they you know, may not yet feel like they are in the middle of a surge, they are extremely alarmed by you know, rising cases in their community, you know, that are in some cases, you know, doubling or tripling every week, even if the overall numbers are low compared to what we're seeing in states like Texas and Florida. So they're beginning to institute preparations for a coming surge and manage toward that if uh, high levels of vaccination don't fully protect them. The story everywhere, whether it's starting at a at zero or starting at a at a at a higher level, is things are just doubling fast and and the volumes are rising a lot faster than we were anticipating. Are, does it seem like hospitals are going to be able to manage electives and COVID cases? I mean, I know some in the South are having trouble doing both and the governor of Texas asked hospitals to hold off on some electives. I mean, it's going to be a lot more nuanced and careful than it was the first time around. So we're not going to see wholesale cancellations of elective surgeries or non-emergent cases. But many health systems and hospitals have started to, to cancel diagnostic screenings and, you know, and some less emergent um, uh, outpatient care and inpatient care because they're just constrained in terms of capacity, both bed capacity and, and staff capacity. But I, you know, I think they're being more careful about it. So for instance, we talked to one health system a couple of days ago who told us that um, while they're starting to go down the path of, of rescheduling things, they're being very careful to not touch anything that has to do with cancer or oncology generally, because they don't want to get back in a situation where um, people are not getting routine needed care for, um, for cancers, for example. Yeah, one way to think about it is that they're being very protective of uh, things that could require inpatient capacity more likely to cancel an outpatient procedure if they have to hold backup space on the hospital side to potentially take care of that patient or where the staff could potentially be flexed from a, an outpatient setting to help on the inpatient side with COVID admissions. Things that are unlikely to cancel with this surge, you know, last spring we saw physician office visits almost flatline. It, you know, over the past year, health systems and doctors have learned how to live with COVID and how to operate, you know, a safe environment in the clinic. Those kinds of things will keep going at full pace is what it seems. I think one of the big differences we're seeing this time from, from, uh, from last year, certainly, and uh, the summer surges last year, uh, is that it's not about a shortage necessarily of supplies or ventilators or anything like that, that the real, the real challenge is staffing. Um, and in some cases, you know, when you're hearing about people are running out of beds, what they're really running out of is staffed beds. And it's because they can't get the staff to staff the beds. Um, so I think the biggest thing that's different now as we go into this fourth surge is not only is the workforce just completely burnt out. I mean, nurses and caregivers, you know, you're just asking them to go back into battle yet again. You're asking them to do that in an environment that is much more politically riven than it was uh, even last summer, which was pretty bad. Uh, what's going on in my community and so forth. And so there's just a level of tension in the workforce nurse shortage in particular that I think is driving uh, a different situation. We're seeing hospitals advertise bonuses that are thousands, if not tens of thousands for nurses. I know it's a really tight labor market. Um, I assume retirements, like you said, burnout, all that is making it worse. Um, can hospitals in places with low vaccination rates even afford to mandate vaccines now? 
they're having to weigh the calculus of whether they can afford to mandate or whether they can't not to afford to mandate as they think about the impact on their staffing levels. Uh, one of the concerns that we've started hearing just over the past few weeks is if a hospital has a number of staff that aren't vaccinated, as Delta has started to take hold in the community, they're seeing you know, much higher levels of, uh, of folks out sick or out because they are quarantining due to an exposure. And so the calculus on whether or not to mandate is now also being influenced, not just by will we lose staff if we, you know, who don't want to get vaccinated, but if we don't do this, will we experience such high levels of staff with COVID or exposures that that is going to keep us from being able to operate? And look, one of the things that we're hearing now, and we've been hearing this for a few weeks is, oh yes, we're going to do a mandate, but we're just waiting, either waiting until everybody else in our market does it or one significant player in our market does it. Uh, or we're all going to go together. And so it's taking a while to coordinate across the health systems what the timing of it is. Or we're going to wait until the FDA fully approves the Pfizer vaccine, which is the which is now expected sometime, I guess, in September or maybe October. And what we are continually telling health systems is look, if you're gonna man, if you know you're gonna mandate it when the FDA approves it, and we know the FDA is nearly certainly going to approve it you're just losing time now. And this ticking time bomb of the exposure of your unvaccinated workforce in the midst of rising you know, patient volumes driven by Delta is probably a bigger problem than any incremental you know, staff that you're gonna lose um, uh, because you put in place a mandate now. So it just, it feels like, um, and I think the number now is something like a quarter of, of, uh, of hospitals are, are, have put in place mandates. I think we're pretty close to a tipping point where everyone's just going to see that logic and, and you'll see a lot of mandates put in place over the next uh, few weeks. Yeah, it's a super important point that it's not immediate from when you announce a mandate to when the mandate actually goes into effect, even if you've done a lot of pre-planning. Uh, your staff have time to apply for exemptions. It's usually whirled out in waves. And so, you know, planning for, we've seen in general, you know, somewhere between one and three months from announcement to, to mandate, that clock needs to start ticking. The other thing that's worth pointing out is that not all mandates are created equal. I mean, there are strict mandates and we've certainly seen some of that where, you know, if you don't come up with a really bulletproof religious or medical exemption, we're gonna invite you to look for a job somewhere else if you don't get the vaccine by X date. And often that date is in September or October. And then there are mandates that are like, you know, just list your reasons and let us know why you're not getting it. And, and uh, you know, we'll, and then you'll, we'll make accommodations for you, which is really, as somebody pointed out, I saw a couple of days ago, not so much a mandate as it is a survey. It's just like, let's find out who doesn't like vaccines. And this is, you know, and, and then have to figure out, you know, what we're going to do to accommodate them. Were the places that were early to mandate coming out as the winners here in terms of are they better prepared for the surge? Are you hearing that? You know, I think it's too early to tell that the number of systems who have fully mandated remains really, really small, and it doesn't necessarily correlate with the places who are experiencing the greatest level of surge right now, but it's going to be something really important to watch over time. And I think there's no doubt that if you're a health system who can say 97 or 99% of all of our staff 
is vaccinated, it definitely communicates a safer environment for people to receive care and protects them uh, from experiencing some of the really high levels of call-offs that we've seen. I can tell you anecdotally that one of the things that we've heard that's been surprising because there's so much negative publicity around the mandates and you know it's being portrayed as a huge labor flashpoint and so it's been gratifying, but you know, one of the things that we've heard anecdotally in a lot of places is that the overwhelming response from the staff when you put in place a mandate is thank you uh, for protecting us and thank you for putting in place the mandate. Yes, there will be protests, outside groups will come in and agitate. There will always be a handful of folks on staff who are vocal and will let you know how much they don't like it, but most caregivers uh, are responding to mandates by, you know, with, with gratitude for uh, being protected in that way. And just turning back to workforce shortages, I know that some places are turning to agency labor, but I hear even that is not necessarily going to be enough. So what are hospitals, health systems going to do? What are you hearing from them? The price of agency labor has gone through the roof. It was bad last year, right? So people leaned very heavily on what are called travelers or you know, nurses who go from, from geography to geography and work temporarily, sort of a temp, temp staffing agencies for, uh, for caregivers. And they leaned very heavily on that when they, when they were in the midst of the surges last year. They've now had to go back to travelers uh, this year in, in this surge, as we've been discussing in a, in a worse workforce situation, but the prices have gone through the roof. I mean, we've heard, you know, stories of, you know, $200, $250 an hour uh, being paid for, uh, for agency nurses. And that's just unsustainable. I mean, there's some of that that you can pay and you just have to pay it because there's a minimal level of staffing, but you know, it's, then it's a matter of, okay, how much, how many of these beds are we actually going to staff and how much can we, you know, flex up and down capacity and transfer cases other places. Um, and again, that's all geographically dependent, you know, depending on how bad the, the surge is, is in your geography right now. And in some places, no matter what price you're willing to pay, you can't even get agency labor. The pool has shrunk uh, in addition to demand going up. Traveling nurses are tired um, after having staffed COVID units for over a year. So what does the rest of the year look like, do you think, for hospitals? I mean, some models are projecting that we'll see this wave peak in September, October. And a couple of things to think about. Um, one is, kids are just starting to go back to school. Uh, and so there is going to be a new transmission belt of, of COVID in the community, which is, uh, you know, largely elementary school kids who may be exposed and, and get COVID, even if asymptomatically, and bring it back to their homes and to their parents. And will that drive another, uh, another surge, you know, over, you know, say September, October? I think we'll see. Uh, and then I think the other issue for ho for hospitals now is to begin to think through, okay, we stood down our mass vaccination sites and, you know, the tents that we'd put up and the mall locations that we had, you know, empty department stores where we were doing shots. And we transitioned to physician offices and clinics to, you know, to distribute vaccines. If we get to the point of boosters, do we now have to stand some of that back up? Where's that staff going to come from? And, uh, and are we back in the business of doing, you know, mass booster uh, vaccinations? Once the FDA fully approves the Pfizer vaccine, whenever that happens, uh, doctors can begin to prescribe it off-label. 
like they can other drugs. And so one thing that you'll see physician practices, I would suspect, be inundated with is requests to, you know, to write me a prescription to get a booster shot, even in advance of the CDC or the FDA recommending that people get booster shots. Um, and so there's going to be a lot of tricky conversations to navigate. And I suspect physician practices and health systems are going to have to put in place some guidelines about who do we let get booster shots uh, of Pfizer. I think that's probably, I don't know what the timing of that is, but that's going to be another confounding factor in the fall for, uh, for hospitals. And as hospitals and health systems look to the bottom line, there is real concern. You know, if we do have to cancel elective procedures uh, and other things across the rest of this year, you know, what will the financial impact be? One thing that seems clear is that we're unlikely to get another infusion of uh, federal funds to hospitals in line with what we saw with the CARES Act last year, uh, which really saved a lot of organizations, particularly smaller systems and, and independent hospitals. The other thing that I think will be um, a bigger challenge this time around and this fall than it was uh, through the last surges is um, there, there's just this huge backlog of care that's still working its way through the system. So there are people who are getting procedures done or need uh, you know, need hospitalization that might have put it off from before. That's that's going to add to the volumes. That hasn't gone away. We'll likely have a flu season, and we're already starting to hear, you know, that that some of the other infectious diseases are driving admissions. RSV seems to be a big deal right now, particularly in pediatric populations, and is filling up uh, pediatric beds. Uh, and so hospitals are just going to be very strained as we go into the. Um, the third and fourth quarters, not just with COVID, but with everything else. And facing that volume, as we've been talking about on thinner staff that are more burned out, uh, I think it's gonna be a really, it's gonna be a very difficult uh, fall. I mean, it, it, it's, it all sounds very dark, right? Uh, but I think the maybe the silver lining or the upside here is um, at a fundamental level, we all know what to do now. Like we know what the way out is. It's drive more vaccines. It's it's uh, put in place some of the non-pharmaceutical interventions like masking and social distancing and ventilation. And hospitals and health systems have now had lots of practice dealing with these ebbs and flows of COVID. And so there is at least a level of comfort that we're not completely making it up as we go along. There's a playbook now that's been developed. And so even though I think the challenges will be harder, um, it's in some ways, it's much easier from a um, what do we do about it perspective than it was last year. That was GIST Healthcare co-founders Chaz Rhodes and Lisa Belamovich. Thanks for listening to GIST Healthcare Daily. I'm Alex Olkin. You can check out more insights on healthcare business and policy news on gisthealthcare.com. Gist Healthcare Daily is an independent production of Gist Healthcare. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello 
Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.